Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. I wanted to take just a moment to again invite you next Sunday at 4 p.m. at First Baptist Church in Gonzales. If you're kind of wondering what a time that is, about an hour. But at 4 p.m. at the First Baptist Church in Gonzales, we'll have our annual associational meeting. And we do business at 4 p.m. And that's a great time for, uh, there are people sometimes that ask me, you know, do we partner with other churches? Do we do work with other churches? And I'm telling you, we do, especially with 50 other churches in our own association. So if you want to hear like, what's going on in our Baptist encampments, our camps, what's going on in Baptist student unions and student ministries across uh, the, the, the region here. We have lots of things going on on college campuses that we do. If you want to hear from our state conventions and kind of what's going on on a bigger level, all that will be happening inside that business meeting when they, uh, they turn in some reports. But more importantly, as you know, Kevin uh, Meilenberg, our formal director of missions, has been called away, and we are now appointing another director of missions, and that will take place in that business meeting. And then we'll do uh, dinner, which is free. Uh, I'm just telling you, come and eat. And uh, you can fellowship with the other churches in the area, and then at 6 p.m. we'll have a worship service together. Uh, so I would love to invite anybody and everybody. You don't have to sign up. You don't have to register. You don't have to do anything. Uh, you can just simply come and be a part of that. Uh, but, you know, this morning I was thinking uh, about what's going on in Israel, and I find it strangely warming that we're in the book of Daniel. Um, and so we're going to be able to see things greater and greater, <laughs> I mean, in greater detail than I think we ever have before about uh, Daniel's prophecies in the future weeks. You may not recognize the name of Desmond Doss. Maybe you do. But you probably may have seen the movie about his life called Hacksaw Ridge. Doss was drafted into the U.S. Army in World War II, but he was a pacifist. And he interpreted his Bible in a way that wouldn't allow him to carry a weapon. But he also loved his country and wanted to serve it, so he accepted the draft and joined the squadron as a medic. And as is depicted in the movie, his pacifism made him a target of all kinds of ridicule. But then one evening, he was serving as a field medic in Okinawa when the Japanese pinned down his unit on the top of a cliff and they began to cut down nearly every single man. Many of the men were wounded, however, and Doss knew that if they stayed wounded overnight, they would certainly die. And so high up on this cliff, the wounded men were not accessible to rescue units, and anybody who tried to come up the cliff would be shot down by the Japanese. So Doss rigged up a stretcher that could be lowered by a series of ropes and pulleys to the ground, and then by himself, crawling under all the sniper fire, he retrieved every single wounded soldier in his unit and lowered them down to safety. President Truman recognized Doss as one of the bravest warriors of World War II, claiming that over 75 men owed their lives solely 
to his courage. And then Truman did something that had never been done before up to that point. He awarded Doss the Medal of Honor to a man who never picked up a weapon. It's interesting, right? You know this. I don't have to remind you this, but great things in the world are accomplished through courage. Lots of people, including me at times, have great intentions. But really, great things really only happen when our intentions move beyond intentions and we have the courage to follow through. I'm just curious. You don't have to really raise your hand, but if you want to participate for kicks and giggles, this would be cool. But how many of you in the room consider yourself naturally courageous people? Anybody in the room? You're just naturally courageous. You've just proven that, that you would you'd put your hand up in a room when nobody else put their hands up. How many of you are like me? You would say, man, I'm still learning what it means to be courageous. Anybody in there? Okay. Thank you all. Y'all make me feel so better. We're going to learn from you, Miss Cindy. Most of us, something that we have to, with courage, is we have to develop it. We have to learn it. We have to see it. And so we're in Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to learn from some, from some young teenagers. Really, they're a little bit older than that when we get to the story about some principles of courage. We're going to look at the courage displayed by the three Hebrew men by the names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or you may better know them through their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Shaq, Rack, and Benny, for all of you VeggieTale fans. And as we watch their story unfold in Daniel chapter 3, and that's where you can be turning right now, I need you to know this is the last time we're going to see these three men in the book of Daniel. We're going to see their courage, their conviction, and their commitment. These are the Psalm 1 men. These are Psalm 101 men. These are Titus 2 men, 1 Timothy 6, 11-21 men. These are the kind of men that are sold out to God that our churches so desperately need today. These are the kind of people that are in very rare supply concerning our faith. These are simply a few good men. I need you to know that as I've looked across the horizon, I see very few people willing to take a stand that God loves them and that He saved them and to stand on the Word of God in uncompromising days. Our text this morning, though, is going to reveal five courage principles. We're only going to get to three of those today, and we'll cover two next time. So let's turn our eyes now upon the holy, inspired, and infallible Word of God, and let's learn some courage principles from these three men. I'm going to ask you to rise to your feet as we read the Word of God. The Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made what, church? What did he make? The height of which was 60 cubits and its width, 6 cubits. That's 90 feet by 9 feet. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. 
Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, tregon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. He says, there are certain, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who could deliver you out of my hands? You may be seated, and may the Lord continue to bless his word. Here's the first courage principle, and they're going to build upon each other. But just know this, that you and I will be confronted with the idols of this world. You and I will be confronted with the idols of this world. I need you to understand that this is an all-out attempt of Satan. Satan is all over these pages. You just may not have seen it. Here's what Satan is up to. He, he brings idols into the world, first of all, that idols exist so that you might glorify them. Idols exist so that you might glorify them. If you look back in verses 1 through 3, King Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. It's 60 cubits, and it's with the 6 cubits. And then he brings everybody in. He assembles everybody that's there. And he says, you guys have to worship this. Now, Daniel chapter 3 follows closely on the hills of Daniel 2. Now, you're saying, duh. (laughs) But I need you to understand there's a time gap here, and we don't know how long it is. The Septuagint, and that's a big word, it's really the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
When we look at the Septuagint, the Septuagint tells us that Daniel 3 took place in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This would be at a time when he has destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and deported for a third time the Jews to Babylon. I think this is reasonable, but I cannot tell you for sure that this is when this happened. But nevertheless, I can tell you that some, some time has expired after Daniel 2 and before we get to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a great statue, if you'll remember that last time, telling him that as a head of gold that he would have an awesome and powerful kingdom. But, Nebuchadnezzar, I need you to hear this, you were only the head You are not the whole statue. It will be a kingdom that will not endure because of the stone that is coming. And if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar paid homage and and praise to Daniel's God, but it was very shallow and surface praise that would not last very long, if you remember that. Because a confession is not necessarily a conversion. We need to understand that. In fact, Daniel chapter 3, 1 through 7, seems to suggest that Nebuchadnezzar did not accept God's will that he was only a head of gold and only a temporary king. He wanted it all, and therefore he sets up this statue, 60 cubits by 6 cubits. It's 90 feet tall by 90 feet wide. It's gold-plated from head to toe. In my imagination, it probably looks like a missile on a launching pad, or perhaps something like the Washington Monument. But but what you need to know is it's totally unbalanced. It has a 10 to 1 ratio. It's very skinny. When we build statues today, the average that we put them is 5 to 1. So he's, he's exaggerated his height. There was another tower that was built really tall in Babylon that you might remember about. Our text goes on at great lengths to note that the idolatrous nature of this statue is gold. And if you were paying attention, you would see that in Daniel chapter 3, the word image is given more than 10 times. This is an image to whether we know it's to necessarily to Marduk or, or Nebu, to, to whomever God, or maybe even to Nebuchadnezzar himself, we cannot say. Likely it includes both. Either way, Commentator Dale Davis is right when he said the story is first commandment material. The writer holds before you this episode because he wants you to make the same response as Daniel's friends. I will believe and obey the first commandment even if it kills me. That's the pressure of the, these young Hebrew men. Uh, the pressure that they're under is, is enormous. Just note a few things there in your text. You saw it. The setup is in a unique location on the plain of Dura, near the city of Babylon. Dura simply means wall or fortress, and so we can't be specific about the location, but we know the plain near Babylon recalls the story of the Tower of Babel, so this is probably either at or at the same place of the Tower of Babel. And its purpose is exactly the same as the Tower of Babel unifying every nation and tribe and tongue, all the ethnes of the earth. The who's who, the movers and shakers of his vast empire are invited to this dedication service. And Nebuchadnezzar sets up a precise moment when national and religious allegiance to him would put on public display and everyone would participate. There's a service of national, political, and religious unification. 
But let's go back, though, and see something that you may not have seen to show you where Satan is incredibly involved. In your English translation, it would probably say 90 by 9, but in the Hebrew, and here in my text, it says 60 by 6. The number of man is 6. The number of the mark of the beast will be 666. The number 6 is the number of the beast of the Antichrist. Again, the statue was wood overlaid with gold. No matter how great man may want to appear on the outside, on the inside, he's full of sin and will not last. No matter how many miracles the enemy tries to perform, when you really look on the inside, you see that it's really a big fake. In other words, Satan's all over this. Just try to steal the glory away from the one true God. This was Nebuchadnezzar's attempt at having everyone glorify him to look at his awesomeness, to look at his power. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't content with a statue that had him as the head. He wanted to be the whole body and to have it all in gold. And that's exactly what the enemy is trying to do, to steal the glory that belongs to the only true God of heaven. To have you and me try and bring glory to someone or something other than the God of heaven. To not be content with what we have, but to have it all. To have you and I make ourselves, our accomplishments, our gifts, our talents, make it all so big that it, that it just elevates us so that people glorify us. And the word here, image, is repeated over and over to tell us and to remind us of the first commandment that says, we shall make no other graven images and worship them. But these young men, they refuse to do it because they have the courage to stand and not worship a statue at the cost of their lives. Many can't take a stand in their workplaces. Many, and I will call him out by name, like Andy Stanley, can no longer now stand on the Word of God. Idols exist so that people will glorify you or take the glory away from God. Secondly, idols exist so that I make a God of them. That I make a God of them. Look there in verses 4 through 7. He says, hey, this command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. And then he goes on to say, at the moment you hear all this musical equipment, at the moment you hear that, you are to bow down. And if you don't, verse 6 says, immediately you're going to be thrown in this furnace of fire. Now that tells me that the furnace is already ready. It's not like something they're going to do later. This has been well thought out. And this is a very important phrase there in the Bible in verse 4. It's incredibly important. You need to pay attention. Let's go back and just read it one more time. The herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. When you see those three things together in the Bible, pay close attention because something important is about to happen. You see, the last time all the nations had been all together in one place was in Genesis 11, where the human race had united in setting up a tower, declaring their independence from God, called the Tower of Babel. 
And God had immediately, in mercy, scattered them into different peoples, nations, and languages. And then immediately in the next chapter, God called Abraham and promised him to make him a great nation, that he would bless all the peoples of the earth and bring them back together in unity around the throne of the Messiah. We see the fulfillment of that in the book of Revelation when John looks and sees a vast throng of people that no one could number from every tribe, tongue, and people on the earth. And they're gathering around the throne and they're glorifying and worshiping the true God of heaven saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. But how, here we have in Daniel chapter 3, satanic involvement where Satan, I believe, enters into Nebuchadnezzar, a usurper, <laughs> attempting to bring the nations back together, united around his glory, his gracious. And again, the irony is it's happening on the exact same location. Satan is at work. Nebuchadnezzar is working to have the people, all people, come worship him. And the enemy wants you to make a God of yourself or to worship something or someone other than the God of heaven. And in normal fashion, please pay attention to this, there's always worship or music attached to worship. In verse 5, we see great and emotional music was to accompany the moment of dedication, adding a powerful emotional and psychological element to the service. Someone has suggested, and I will continue to hold to this to the day I die, that Satan always perverts God's music. You see, music came from God, and music is for God and for his purposes. Every false religion and every cult on this earth finds some way to use music to get you to worship what they want you to worship. I am not going to try to tell you what you should listen to. I'm just trying to tell you, please take heed to the messages that are in the songs that you listen to because there is an attempt to get you to worship something other than God. So, verse 6 comes an ultimatum. There's a death warning to anyone who refuses to fall down. Verse 7, we know that when the moment of commitment comes... It appears that everyone has pledged their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. So can you imagine this countless throng of people from from the eye can't see as far as it goes. They're all falling down. They're on their faces worshiping. But there's these three young dudes that kind of stick out like a sore thumb. You see, when confronted with these idols, they exercise courage. And can I just tell you today why this is so serious for you and I? Is it because I know that you may think with me, Steve, I don't really have a problem with idolatry. Can I just remind you of how this maybe works in a different way? Suppose a woman walks into a room and finds her husband embracing another woman. He sees his wife out of the corner of his eye, and he says, baby, 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 baby. Wait a minute. Don't don't get the wrong idea here. Let me tell you what I was doing. This woman is so beautiful, and she just reminds me of you. I was just thinking of you when I was embracing her. Now, now, there's not a woman in this room, nor in America, nor in the entire world that's going to buy that, including my wife, Rachel. 
And God doesn't buy it either. When you and I are worshiping something else and saying, Lord, just wait a minute. Don't get the wrong idea here. I was just just doing this because it reminds me of you. I was just doing that because it reminds me of you. No, we really weren't. That's what the second commandment is all about. And I'm just trying to tell you something here today. Idols are deceptive. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. We're creating them every single day. When, when good things become God things, they become bad things. We, we all have idols. You may be tempted to glorify yourself, to make a God out of yourself, to make a God out of even good things like football, for heaven's sake. To make idols out of exercise, to make idols out of relationships, to make idols out of our cell phones. I mean, they're everywhere. Anything that begins to demand my attention and where I find my joy is probably an idol to me it's not the Lord Jesus. Some confrontations may come quietly and without much attention. Other confrontations with idols are very public and put on display for many to witness. My question is, is when you are faced with the idols of this world and you will be, what will you do? I know that we don't live in the ancient city of Babylon, but we are exiles in a foreign land and this is not my home. Idols are very seductive and a lot of times they show up and you don't even know you're worshiping one. You're going to be confronted, and the whole purpose of them is to get you to glorify them so that you will ultimately make a God of them so that you will bow down to them. You'll be confronted by the idols of the world, but secondly, you'll you'll be criticized by the people of this world. If you don't bow down to idols, I'm just telling you, if you're a student in high school and you don't bow down to what's going on in your school, and you just stick out and you're just different, you just want to follow Jesus, trust me, you're going to get criticized. If at your workplace, you don't go along with all the foul jokes and you don't repeat all the foul stuff that goes on and you don't look what they do and you don't use the language that they do and you don't go where they go, you're going to be criticized. It's just going to happen. You see, when you won't bow down and even idolize yourself or idolize something else, there's going to be criticism because verses 8 through 12, the Bible tells me something there. It says these Chaldeans... They came forward and bring charges against the Jews. And then they, they get real sneaky. They're like, oh, king, oh, king, haven't you made this decree? Haven't you said everybody's supposed to fall down? Verse 11, and if, if they don't, you're supposed to burn them up? Isn't that what they, they're after? But there are certain Jews among you. King, and they're the ones that you appointed over the administration. And in case you really don't know who they are, King, I mean, really, like, let's just get real here. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys? And King, they've disregarded you. They don't serve your gods, and they don't worship the image which you have set up. Well, that's interesting to me. Because honoring and obeying God is not always popular. Sometimes it gets us into serious problems, even life-threatening situations. While the latter may not be the experience of Christians in America, can I tell you today, it is a daily reality for many of my friends, many people that you know living around the world. 
simply trying to live a faithful life to the God and Savior they love. They're criticized, ostracized, and even hated. But when the time came to bow down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, these three men conspicuously remained standing. Please again notice that there wasn't any fanfare They weren't there with these picket signs. They weren't there casting stones at people. They weren't there cussing those people out. They were just simply standing in quiet disobedience. Well, who who are these guys? Well, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Amendigo. So their enemies quickly spring into action. The Chaldeans, these are the accusers. They're, they're Babylonian officials. They're, they're these general diviners, this priestly class of wise men. They come, and I think that they're the rivals that, that these guys have taken their place. They're, they're just really upset about this, and now they've found a way to punish them. It's possible, though, that I believe that they were deeply anti-Semitic. They step forward. Now, here's something that you didn't see because it's not translated this way because it would fall on some deaf ears. It's a euphemism, but it says here, it says that the Chaldeans came and brought charges against the Jews. Now, if you read that in the Hebrew and study that in the Hebrew and you're like, I don't know Hebrew. That's why you have me. Here's what it literally says. Literally. It says they ate their pieces. In other words, they tore into them with their mouth. They they literally just consumed them with their criticism. They literally ate their lunch, to say it differently. They they literally put their fangs into them and, and desired to devour them with their criticism. It's not just a little bit. There was ill intent and hatred inside of them. Their approach was a strategic one because the evil one is a schemer and a wise serpent who chooses to accuse us. They butter up the king and say, hey, you're the king who lives forever. But then a little backhanded, passive-aggressive criticism. Uh, King, this was your idea. (laughs) These are your people, and they're not doing what you told them to do. And then here it comes, right? Here it come. These are the Jews that you've put up. These are your boys. They, they're the ones that, that you've brought in, and they pay no attention to you. They don't respect you. They don't care about who you are. They don't serve your gods. And eh, correct on that. They don't worship the golden image. Right again. Interestingly, the idea of the king setting up his idol appears seven times in this passage. That's in striking contact, contrast to Daniel 2.21 where Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, God changes times and seasons and he removes kings and sets up kings. So Nebuchadnezzar is playing a role that only God can play. And in the process, he's setting up a showdown that he's certainly going to lose. It appears that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a no-win situation. The critics have come out in the open. Now he must do something to save face. The stage is set, and it doesn't look good for these men. These devoted disciples of the God of heaven had given them favor and wisdom in chapter 1, and the, quest, the question that we're now asking is, is now what will the God of heaven do? Well, until we know, we have to use courage to stand against the criticism. The story is told of a judge who had been frequently ridiculed by a very conceited lawyer. When asked by a friend why he didn't rebuke his assistant, 
He replied, well, in our town lives a widow who has a dog. And whenever the moon shines, it goes outside and barks all night. Having said that, the magistrate uh, shifted the conversation to another subject. And finally, somebody asked him, but judge, what about the dog and the moon? And the judge just responded, well, the moon went on shining, that's all. And I'm just trying to tell you, let people bark all they want to. Just go on shining for Jesus. Just go on shining for Jesus, or better yet, there's some advice. One time a pastor was there, and someone in his congregation pointed out several faults in him and his preaching. And instead of retaliating or trying to defend himself, he looked at the person who was making these faults in his preaching, and he said, listen, ma'am, if what you say is really true about me, would you please pray for me? We just got to press on and then deal with it in humility because we're going to face criticism for taking a stand. We, we have to just keep pressing on and do what, what we find that the apostles did in, in the midst of a government trying to tell them what they had to do. The apostles in Acts chapter 5, it says this, but Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than man. When you're confronted and then criticized, the pressures begin to mount. And it's at this point, many people simply give in or give up. And I'm just asking you this point right now. Listen, you haven't really been warned that you're going to be put in the fire, but I can tell you, you've been confronted with things and you've been criticized about things. And it may get to the point to where you feel the teeth and you feel it coming. You just begin to maybe push away from some of your convictions because in this day and age, with all that's happening about gender, with all that's happening about sexuality, you have friends, you have family, and you don't want to offend anybody. So we just keep remaining silent for fear of what people are going to say. I'm telling you, on the name of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to take a stand and face what's coming. And it's going to require courage, friends. Because the next thing that's coming, and it's coming from our government, I promise you, it's just around the corner. That's the third thing this morning. I will be commanded to worship the gods of this world. Eventually, when I'm confronted and then when I'm criticized, if I don't bow down, there's going to be a command. We saw that this at the beginning, but now things are really picking up. If we don't give in when confronted or criticized, the next thing that's happened is we're going to give the ultimatum of a command. In verse 13, he says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring these men in. And then he says, Hey, is this true? And then in verse 15, he says the same thing. Listen, when we fire up the band, all you've got to do is just bow down and we're good. You see, something you need to know that these young men had already decided is something I try to teach my children. And some of them listen, some of them don't. It is much better to determine what you're going to take a stand on before you have to face it than to try to take a stand when you're in it. Put it differently. If you're going to wait to have sex outside of marriage, you need to have that decision when you're three and four and five and six. Made that decision then than to wait till you're a teenager to decide to do that. 
You see, these three men already made a decision. When they came to understand who the Messiah was, they were never going to back away. So when the time come, they didn't have to make a decision whether their life counted to them or not. They had already made that decision. And as far as I know, Jesus said, whoever comes and follow me must what? Pick up his cross and do what? Die to themselves daily. We've already said to Jesus, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'm going to die. No matter what, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image, made the goal to glorify himself and unify his kingdom. Everything's going along nicely until these three men refuse to go along. Now, to say that Nebuchadnezzar was not impressed by their religious convictions, I think, is an understatement. Nebuchadnezzar's in a furious rage. They had resisted. Watch this. Listen to this, students. Listen to this college age. Listen to this, everybody in this room. Listen. They didn't go along with the herd mentality. The entire nation and nations were all bowing down. But they didn't go along with it. They didn't, they didn't just go along with what everybody else was doing. They bravely stood alone. Now, you may be saying, well, where is Daniel? I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. I think from my study that Daniel has been called away on business to represent Nebuchadnezzar in other places or else he would have been there standing with them. Obviously, Daniel is not there. Don't ask me where he's at. There's no secret prophecy in here. There's nothing going on. But he commanded that they be brought before him, and he questioned them, and he, and he does this, and he says, hey, if you guys will just, just bow down, everything's good. Their options are very clear and plain. Then Nebuchadnezzar asked the question that I think is the key to the entire episode. He says, and who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> I mean, if you're so foolish to ignore my gracious offer, who is going to save you? Daniel, don't you know that I came and whooped your God when we went up in Jerusalem? Don't you remember that? Daniel, don't you know your God got beat and that's why you're here in my kingdom? Do you really think your puny God who let you be taken captive is going to save you now? Who do you think is going to save you? I don't know that we naturally incline ourselves to identify with Nebuchadnezzar at this point, but I've been thinking about this. Do I identify more with Nebuchadnezzar or do I identify more with these three young men? I mean, I was thinking about this. Sometimes do I exalt myself beyond what I should? Do I not act sometimes in my own life through lack of prayer that maybe my destiny is really in my own hands because maybe I'm not really depending upon God? Is it not the same pride that lurks in my own heart to think that I am in control of my own life? I want badly to identify with these three Jewish men, but before I do, I've been asking myself all week, who is this God who would deliver me? Do I think my God can deliver me from my pride? Do I think my God can deliver me from my arrogance? Do I think my God can deliver me from my sin? 
these three young men, they're not going to trust in themselves. They're not going to trust in the powers of this world. Even if it costs them everything, they're going to be courageous and stand strong and trust in the most high God. Nebuchadnezzar's question is indeed the question of the ages. Who is the God who will deliver? The three Jews were glad that he asked. The question had been settled in their hearts long ago. If commanded to worship the gods of this world and be praised and worship the one true living God, they had simply already made up their mind. We read about it later. Nebuchadnezzar, we're trusting in God to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. You see, they already had a word from God. They weren't waiting to get a word from God in that moment. They already had a word from God. And they were going to obey the word of God no matter what it cost them. Boy, do I wish I had that kind of courage. Boy, do I wish I had that kind of consistency that I would rather die than disobey the word of God. That's huge. Because in Exodus chapter 20, they had this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or the likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or what is in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, am your God, a jealous God, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. In other words, they had already said, O king, we don't fear your punishment. You may throw us into a fire here. But if we disobey you, God's punishment is far worse. They were like Joshua. They had already made up their mind. Joshua 24, 15, but if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you are served, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorite in the land who you're living. But as for me and my house, what do they say, church? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, beloved, we've already been given a word. We've already been given a command. And now we just have to be strong enough and courageous enough to obey it. Somebody once said, it's not the, the things in Scripture that I don't understand. It's the things in Scripture that I do understand that I have a problem with. Because I really don't even obey what I know when I'm trying to figure out what I don't know. Simply determine ahead of time that you're going to obey the word. And listen, I'm just going to tell you this. This is just me being as simple as I possibly can to you. But listen, if you're going to obey the Word of God, it presupposes that you know the Word of God. You can't obey what you don't know. And so you need to be in the Word of God. If you don't think it is possible that one person is going to demand, command that you worship or die, let me just remind you of what happened in the United States a few years ago. Through one person's proclamation, you had to either get a vaccine or lose your job. You had to wear a mask or you couldn't go into HEB. You had to stay six feet apart and have no large gatherings or you would be arrested. You don't think it can happen today? It's coming, church. And this was an attempt to get you and I to worship the God of science. You and I to worship the God of medicine, or even better yet, to bow at the throne of Fauci. It's easily going to become greater 
and more invasive. It's happening right now. You have to hire certain people or you lose your business. You can't refuse to bake a cake for certain people or you go to the Supreme Court. You can't refer to certain people by regular pronouns or else you'll be losing your job or sued for hate speech. I'm just telling you, this is just the icing on the cake to what's coming, church. You and I are going to have to be courageous. We're going to have to be willing to give our own lives up for what it means to be a believer in this country. You will be confronted by the idols, criticized by the people, and commanded to worship the gods of this world. But nevertheless, you have to be courageous. And I think there's a time coming that we see previews of it happening all over the world and now in Israel. I don't know if you remember this, but back in 1999, there was a famous young teenager by the name of Cassie Bernal. Do you remember her? She was martyred for her faith in Christ on April the 20th, 1999 at Columbine High School. That's in Denver, Colorado, just outside. She was 17 years old. Several reports of the shootings and 11 classmates and one teacher that were also killed suggest that one of the murderers, Eric Harris, asked Cassie, only ask her simply, do you believe in God? What's the famous line? She said, yes. And he immediately shot her and killed her because she just even said she believed in God. But if you read the story You know that Cassie's decision to stand for Jesus, like the three Hebrew men here in Daniel 3, was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. Well, there was no chance to reflect upon the potential consequences. It was a decision she had already settled in her heart long before, because in a letter written to her friend less than a year before her death, she wrote these words. When God doesn't want me to do something, I definitely know it. But when he wants me to do something, even if it means going outside my comfort zone, I know that too. I feel pushed in the direction I need to go. I try to stand up for my faith at school. It can be discouraging, but it can also be rewarding. I will die for my God. I will die for my faith. It's the least I can do for Christ dying for me. See, Cassie said yes, and she extreme, exercised extreme courage, and it cost her her life on this earth. These three men exercised extreme courage, and it almost cost them their lives. Either way... I wonder if the Lord may be asking you to be courageous in your faith. I wonder this morning, have you given your heart to idols? Have you backed away and not said things or not did things because you feared the criticism that was coming? Or have you compromised and given in to sin? I want to remind you of Joshua 1.9 as the band begins to come. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. And courageous. Do not be terrified nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning? I don't know really where you're at today, but I want to tell you the first step. And this courageous thing with God is really just slipping out of your seat and coming to meet me here at the altar to give your life for Jesus. We've seen God do that in the past couple of weeks, haven't we? 
maybe during some of those services you were like, man, I wanted to go, but I was just afraid. Can I, can I just ask you today? We're going to be singing. Myself and some others will be down here. Just come grab us by the hand and say, man, I need this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the one who died to pay for our sin. He's the one who was crucified upon a cross because the wages of sin is death and either Jesus is going to pay it or you're going to pay it. And God so loved you that he says he'll let his son pay it for you. It would be buried, man, to cover our sin, that it would be cast as far as the east, as far as the west. He'd be raised again to give you victory over it, to give you freedom from sin. And your, your whole entire destiny could change today. Because there's this great God in heaven who loves you so much. He wants relationship with you. But your sin and my sin have separated us. And God today, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is speaking to your heart, maybe calling you and inviting you in. Hey, come, I want, I want to be your father. If that's you today, just here in this moment, when we're meeting there, just come grab me by the hand. Maybe others of you need to just come and pray. Maybe there's some situations, man, where you know you have to make a stand. I was talking with a man earlier this week, and he put in his resignation at his job simply because he needed to take a stand. I'm just telling you, man, maybe God's asked you to do something crazy. <laughs> maybe God's asking you to start a ministry. Maybe God's calling you into the ministry. Maybe God's calling you to the mission field, and you're like, man, I just need some courage. God, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to pray. Would you meet me here as we pray? Lord Jesus, I need your courage. So please, God, today, endue me with greater amounts of courage. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, make me courageous. Make me strong. And speak now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.